The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, if you have joined us for the month of July, you know that we are doing a series on women in the Bible. And Pastor Chris kicked off this series with Hagar, and um, I talked about the prophetess Deborah and Jael last week, found in the book of Judges. And today, we're gonna turn one page past the book of Judges and learn about Ruth, who actually has a whole book in the Bible. Now, Ruth is one of two women to have a book in the Bible, the other one being Esther. And if you have 25 minutes this week, that's how long it will take you to read the entire book of Ruth. It's a short page turner. It's four chapters. It is 85 verses. And it reads like a Nicholas Sparks movie. It is filled with obstacles and tragedy, and it ends in a happy romance. So I highly encourage, if you have 25 minutes this week, read the entire book, because the sermon will be that much more rich if you know all the details. Today, we are going to read chapter one. And we're going to read all of chapter one, because like I said, it's a page turner. It reads like a parable, and it's a good story. I will tell you that as we read, if you are like me and you zone out every time someone reads to you and you start thinking about what you're going to have for lunch, just know I'm going to offer short summaries after every couple paragraphs. So if you need to zone out, I get it. I do that too. A short summary is coming. So Ruth chapter one begins, a long time ago. When judges still ruled over Israel, and the land was dried up with famine, a man from Bethlehem, which ironically means place of bread, left his home in Judah to live as a foreigner in the land of Moab. He traveled with his wife and their two sons. His name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were called Malon and Chilion. They were descendants of Ephraim's tribe from Bethlehem and Judah. They had settled and made lives for themselves in Moab. But soon after, Elimelech died, leaving Naomi in the care of her sons. Each son married a woman from Moab. One was named Orpah. It's not Oprah. I had to practice. Orpah. And the other, Ruth. And they lived together for 10 years before Malin and Chilion died also. Naomi was left alone without her husband and two sons. So a lot just happened in those two paragraphs. Naomi, this is my summary, I told you I'd do this. Naomi was married, and um, her and her family lived in Bethlehem. Bethlehem went through a famine, which is ironic because it's called the place of bread, and they decided to leave Bethlehem with their entire family, and they packed up their bags And out of all places, they went to Moab. Now, Moab was seen as an enemy of Israel and an enemy of them. So it it was an interesting choice for them to not only go to Moab, this place that was apparently where the enemy lived, but also for them to let their sons marry Moabite women. 
During that time, this story would read as highly controversial. So here they are um, in Moab, and bad news strikes Naomi, left and right. First, her husband dies. Then she moves in with her sons and daughter-in-laws, and both of her sons die. And now Naomi is left with herself and her two daughter-in-laws. She has no blood relatives left in Moab because they were immigrants to that land, and she decides to go back home to Bethlehem, which is where we pick up in this story. Word had reached Moab that the Eternal One had once again brought life back to the land of Israel and blessed his people with food. Naomi prepared to return with her daughters-in-law. With Orpah and Ruth at her side, she began her journey back to Judah, leaving the place where she had lived. Naomi said to Orpah and Ruth, you have accompanied me far enough. You must both return to Moab. Go home to your mother's care and your people. So at this point, Naomi is accompanied by Orpah and Ruth, and she says, listen, you don't have family in Bethlehem. You are Moabite women. What are you doing leaving your communities? Don't feel sorry for me. God is against me. Please stay home. You have a whole life ahead of you. She continues to try to convince them, may the eternal show you his loyal love to you just as they demonstrated it to my dead sons and me. I hope he will bring you new husbands and that you will find the rest you deserve in their homes. She drew close, kissed them, and turned to go on her way alone. But Orpah and Ruth wailed and sobbed, crying out to her, They said, do not leave us. We insist you take us with you to live with you and your people. Now, a lot of you, um, this is a story about wailing and sobbing because your mother-in-law is going to live in the town over. And some of you, I think, can't relate. (laughs) I happen to like my mother-in-law a lot. But truly, they are devastated that the mother-in-law is not going to live with them anymore. And Naomi responds, go back to your homes, my daughters. What possible reason would you have for returning with me? Do you think there are more sons inside of me? It's weird to say that, the time when I actually do have a son inside of me. Do you think there are more sons inside of me? Will you marry these unborn sons? Listen to me, daughters, and go back. I am old. I will not marry again because I cannot conceive. But even if I could, if I still believe there was hope for me, or if I had a husband and conceived sons tonight, would you waste a lifetime waiting for them to grow up? Would you let this hope for the future keep you from remarrying now? Now, this paragraph is admittedly weird, right? She's basically saying, do you think that I'm going to have a baby and that you can marry that baby? It's a weird turn of events. And I think Orpah and Ruth are like, what is our mother-in-law talking about right now? But they're giving her some grace because she is grieving and she's hungry and she's lost everyone. She said, of course not, my dear daughters. It is obvious that the eternal has acted against me. My life is much too bitter for you to share with me. At this, Orpah and Ruth 
wailed and wept again. They really loved their mother-in-law. And then Orpah kissed Naomi, said goodbye, and returned the way she had come. But Ruth refused to go and refused to let go of Naomi. So here, Orpah leaves. She's like, fine, I get it. I'll go back. And Ruth is holding strong. She's saying, I'm not leaving. Naomi says, look at your sister-in-law. She has returned to live with her people and to worship her gods. Go and follow her. And Ruth says, stop pushing me away, insisting that I stop following you. And this is where Ruth breaks out into this famous poem. You've probably heard this read at weddings. What a lot of people at the wedding don't know is this is actually a poem between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. But it is beautiful poetic language that can be used for any love story. I understand why it's used at weddings. Ruth breaks out into this beautiful poetic voice. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will also die and be buried there near you. May the eternal one punish me even more so. If anything besides death comes between us. So basically, Ruth says, I will go wherever you go. I'm never leaving you. The only way I'm leaving you, the only way we will be separated is if one of us dies. And when Naomi heard this, she finally accepted Ruth's invitation to join. She saw Ruth's resolve. She stopped trying to talk her out of returning to Judah. And the two women went on together to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a small town. And remember, Naomi is from Bethlehem. So news is spreading that she's coming back. And news of their arrival spread. In fact, the whole community was humming with the report, with the women exclaiming, could it really be the same Naomi who left us long ago? Like, can you believe Naomi's back? I can relate to this. I grew up in a small town with one set of stoplights. It's like, guess who's here, right? Everyone knows each other. And Naomi said, do not call me Naomi ever again, for I am no longer pleasant. So the name Naomi actually means pleasant. She said, call me Mara instead, for I am filled with bitterness. And the name Mara translates to bitterness. Now, a lot of people criticize Naomi here. They think she's negative or ungrateful. But I think Naomi is human. I think we would all be like Naomi. If we were traveling and we were hungry and our partner died and our kids died, and then people started calling us pleasant, we might say, no, I'm bitter right now. I'm not pleasant. That's where Naomi's coming from. She said, I left this place full in spite of the famine, but the eternal has brought me back empty from a plentiful land. Why would you call me pleasant when the eternal has testified against me and the highest one has brought disaster upon me? This was how Naomi came into Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth from Moab. It was at the beginning of the barley harvest when they returned to the land. So that's all of chapter one. That last line is important. It was at the beginning of the barley harvest. I'm going to summarize chapters two, three, and four for you because you have to know to understand chapter one. 
But there was a barley harvest, and um, Ruth had found a field. And during that time, there was a custom that was in line to protect poor and those that were marginalized and the immigrants. And that is, if you owned land that was harvested, you had to leave some leftover for the poor to come and get food for free. And so Ruth knew about this rule. She found a harvest. She started um, picking up crops and barley. And she was really good at it. She was a hard worker. And the landowner noticed Ruth. And his name was Boaz. And we know that he was a really good guy because he actually offered Ruth a job. And offering a job to not just an immigrant, but a Moabite woman would have been seen as offering a job and being generous to the immigrant and the enemy. And that's exactly what Boaz did. So we know that he followed his religion pretty well by treating the immigrant and the outsider and his enemy with love. Well, Ruth goes back to Naomi and says, you're not gonna believe it. Not only do I have a harvest of food, but I also was offered a job by this really nice man who was so gracious to me. His name is Boaz. And Naomi says, Boaz? I know him. He's part of our family. Why don't you put on some perfume and wash your hair and get on your best dress and go try to convince Boaz to marry you? And that's exactly what Ruth does. So Ruth and Naomi conspire to go hit on Boaz. And Ruth shows up looking like a snack. She is dolled up. She is in her best of everything. And Boaz is tempted. He wants her. But if he follows his religion and the law, there's technically another relative that is closer in line that would have rights to her and her husband and father-in-law's property. And so he says, of course, I want you, Ruth, but someone else is first in line. Let me go talk to this guy. So Boaz has a meeting with this guy, and he says, okay, you're entitled to this land and this inheritance. Do you want it? And the guy says, absolutely. And then he says, well, it comes with Ruth and Naomi. And the guy says, oh, never mind. And we laugh, but we can relate. Like, we want the blessing without the responsibility all the time. So, Boaz is doing like a celebration victory dance. That means he gets the girl he wants to marry, Ruth, and he also gets this inherited land from those that have been deceased in her family. And the story ends well, as I told you it would. Boaz and Ruth have a baby. They name him Obed. Obed has a baby. They name him Jesse. Jesse has a baby who becomes King David. So not only is Ruth part of this redemption story where she has a happy ending, but she's actually part of the lineage that restores peace and prosperity to the land of Israel through David. And the story gets better. Because if you keep reading in Matthew, we now know that Ruth is one of the five women that were in the lineage of Jesus. 
So God had a plan for this immigrant woman who was from the enemy land to not only be redeemed through a good story, but to become part of the line of Jesus. See, you needed to know chapters two, three, and four. It's necessary. Such a good story. Seriously, if you have 25 minutes this week, read it all. It's important. And I don't even think I need to preach a sermon after telling you about this story, because my guess is that you've taken some things out of the Bible already. But I did narrow it down to three main points that I think we can think about as it relates to this story. One of those is simple but hard, and that is... Do we got it up there? Here we go. There it is. You can say yes to help and love. Now, Naomi tried so hard to say no to help. She said, God hates me. Why would you come with me? I don't want to be an inconvenience. And my guess is, Ecclesia, you do that sometimes too. People want to help you in some ways. And you don't want to be in the way or inconvenient. My husband and I recently moved in February from Missouri City to Houston. Any Mo City people here? Not many. Well, it's a great place. I love Missouri City. Um, we recently moved, and we became fast friends with our neighbors, the Lytle family. They actually go to Ecclesia, just by chance. And um, our kids are the same age. My son is two, and they have a three-year-old. And um, we get together between like 4.30 and 6. If you have a toddler, you know that's like a long, that's a, that's a hard part of the day, right before dinner. And they were over at our house, and my husband was cooking gumbo, and he had made way too much. And Jenna, the mother, was talking about, you know, what they were going to do for dinner, and I said, oh, my husband just happened to make way too much food. You should eat here. And she said something that I think is so profound. She said, uh, it's so awkward saying yes to things. Okay, we'll have dinner here. And the next night, we were in their living room. And my son came up to me and was tugging on my dress and was saying, mommy, I'm hungry. And it was 5.30. And I thought, oh, I don't have plans. I don't know what we're going to feed you. And she said, well, I was going to make dinner. Why don't you all just eat here? And I said, okay, because the night before we had just fed them. And I have to tell you, Ecclesia, that I think we're made to be an interdependent people. We're made to depend on each other. We live in a culture that is so highly individualistic that we forget this truth that when we help someone else, and I'll use air quotes, when we help someone else, it also is feeding us, and vice versa. And we know this, but our culture is so bad at this. In fact, oftentimes within the context of help, there's a saviorism component involved, right? It's like one person is the helper and one is the receiver. But in interdependence, both are simultaneously betting or benefiting from a mutual relationship. It's the opposite of codependence where one person is enabling another person's self-destruction or toxicity. But interdependence is what Ruth and Naomi were. 
They both depended on each other. I think Naomi didn't want to accept the help from Ruth, but what she didn't know is that Ruth also needed Naomi. And when we look back at this story, we see that those two women needed each other for this to all work out the way that it did. And that's often true for us too. If you've worked with our unhoused ministry here at Ecclesia, you know that it's not just the unhoused that benefit when we serve, it's also ourselves. So often we want to be the savior and change the lives of others, but what we really need is for other people to change us. And that's how the gospel always works. Leela Watson has this brilliant quote, and I use it all the time. She says, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is tied up with mine, then let us work together. And Ruth and Naomi both had a liberation that were tied up with each other. Second thing, my next two points are short. Um, Ruth doesn't offer advice to Naomi. She offers her presence. We are bad at this one also. We're bad at asking for help. We're bad at just listening and being present without jumping to fixing and advice. You notice Ruth did not say, you know what, Naomi, you are grieving wrong. You are misnegative. What you need is a cold plunge and a green juice. I saw it on Instagram. It works. No, she didn't say that. Ruth just listened, and she responded by saying, I'm not leaving you. Wherever you go, I will go. There's nothing you can do to shake me off. I'm not leaving you. And that's exactly what Naomi needed to hear in that moment. Because she was in a situation where everyone had abandoned her. Her husband, her kids, her family, gone in a flash. And what she really needed, even though she wasn't ready to accept it, she needed somebody to say, there's nothing you can do I'm gonna love you and be with you no matter what. I have no advice, I have no solution, but I'm gonna be next to you and I'll go wherever you go. And finally, my last point is that I think this story tells us that you can always come back home no matter what. There is something about home. You know, Naomi decided to return home to Bethlehem. And my guess is that returning home, she was different the second time. She wasn't who she used to be. So much so that she wanted a different name. She's like, no, y'all know me as Naomi. I'm not pleasant anymore. I'm bitter. This is Naomi 2.0, and it's how I grieve. And my guess is you have returned home different as well. That you visited old places in your life where you are no longer the same. And sometimes that's hard. I grew up in Wisconsin, and my family built a house when I was three years old. And I grew up in that house, and they kept it up until we moved to Houston, and they stayed for a while and eventually sold that home. And I no longer have a home to live in when I go back to Wisconsin. We have to get an Airbnb or a hotel, which is really weird. And I do this thing where I drive by our old house. 
And my husband thinks it's creepy because I'll like do it a lot. I want to know who's living there. I want to know if they know about the salamanders to the right of the house in the windowsill. I want to know if they know how to build a ski jump on the left side of the house down the hill and if they are aware that is the best sledding in the neighborhood. I want to know if they've made a fort under my staircase. I don't think they know how to live in my house rightly, and I just want to let them know I want to meet them. I've never met these people. But there's something about home that is nostalgic. It matters. It carries so much of our story. And I think this story is about a physical home of Bethlehem, but it's also about a spiritual home with God. And this reminder that we are always welcome back home to God, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, if our faith has wavered and our story has strayed, if at times we have not just abandoned God, but abandoned ourselves, that we are always not just invited home, But if you read the story of the prodigal son, you know that you aren't invited, you are celebrated when you return home to God. And that there's nothing you can do about it. You can try to be like Naomi and shake Ruth off and say, no, I'm not celebrated, I'm bitter, leave me alone, I wanna be alone. But that's not how God works. God looks at us and says, wherever you go, I will go. Whatever you do, I will do. There's nothing that can separate us, and I'm not leaving. And if you want to come home at any point, the door is not just open. There's a party for you, because that's how our God works. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.